Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. And we're just going to pray now for Howard. Holy Spirit, guide us towards Jesus. Holy Spirit, lift our eyes, lift our hearts, lift our minds, our whole being towards Jesus. Fill Howard now with your presence, with your person. Give him insight, Lord. Shed your light upon your word. And let us not leave here the same as we entered, 
change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very much, Dave. And good morning and welcome to you to Westminster Chapel. Um, it's been said already, my name is Howard. It's my privilege to lead, uh, be part of the leadership here at Westminster Chapel. Um, well done for braving it through the storm, <laughs> for making it here. Um, uh, that's fantastic. I really hope to get to know you as well. We've got our newcomers lunch straight after the service. So if you're new today or you're new-ish over the last few weeks, um, you're very welcome. Come to that. I'd love to talk, answer any questions that you've got about us as a church and tell you a little bit about us as well. Um, but as Andy mentioned, we're in a series called Heart Cry. Um, it's about prayer um, and becoming people after God's own heart. Uh, we started a few weeks back. Uh, it was called uh, The Cry for Satisfaction, Finding Our Heart's Satisfaction in God. And then last week, Andy did a super job, The Cry for Wisdom. When you don't know what's going on, everything seems confusing. How do you pray for understanding? Today, we're looking at The Cry for Intimacy. Now, as soon as I mention the word intimacy because of the culture that we live in, kind of different ideas sort of pop up in people's minds about what that might mean, um, particularly that it might have kind of sexual kind of overtones in today's society, that the two kind of words are sort of interchangeable, intimacy and sex. I just want to kind of clear out any potential awkwardness that there might be in the room by essentially saying, I'm not really going to be talking about that today. If you walk out now, we will all assume the wrong thing about you, maybe. <laughs> um, so we're not really talking about that idea of sex. None of them against talking about sex. We've talked about that uh, in the past here at, at chapel. I believe that God created it. Um, he's not a killjoy in that sense. Um, but the kind of intimacy we're talking about today is about knowing and being known at the deepest level of being. It's kind of an intimacy which is all about into me, see, intimacy. And I think most of us are searching for intimacy in all sorts of places and are often very disappointed that we don't find it. You know, think of the person just going on date after date after date, never finding the perfect person that they could be truly vulnerable and open with, that they could really share their life with, or having sex with different people again and again all over the place, um, but feeling like you're hurt inside because you're just some kind of objectified kind of plaything, or that you're working really hard to build friendships with people, but you're frustrated because of all that time investment, they still don't get you, they don't really understand. There is this deep inner angst of aloneness that we feel. We all want to be really known. Yet at the same time, there is this part of us that we're frankly pretty terrified about anybody else knowing <laughs> the, the real truth about us. This little part, this, this part of us that we're scared. If they knew that about me, they wouldn't just not like me, that no one would ever love me. And so we keep up this kind of exhausting experience of never being able to drop our guard, never being able to reveal our true selves, never being able to truly say what we think or feel because we, we fear being rejected. And so we can sometimes medicate this inner ache. Maybe you've done this, you buy a pet because <laughs> you feel safe with them. You can talk to them. They're not going <laughs> to be difficult, right? Or, or, or you medicate with binging on Netflix and stuff like that. 3.9 million 
people today in the United Kingdom say that their closest companion is their television. It's quite alarming, isn't it? Or maybe you go on social media and you share your woe to the world, just hoping for some supportive affirmations and comments and emojis and things like that. None of these things are like especially terrible, but I think they all show us that they're not really the answer to the deepest problem. They don't really resolve what's going on inside us. And the thing is, even if you get these things that we go after, hoping that they'll provide intimacy, often they really don't. So you could, you could marry the perfect person and still be alone. You could be rich and famous and have hundreds and thousands of adoring fans and still actually feel unknown. You could chase after everything, living life your way, doing whatever, frankly, you want, but without God, you still sense there's something wrong inside you. There's an author called Julian Barnes, and he wrote a book called um, Nothing to be Frightened of, and right at the start, he makes this really interesting comment. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I miss him. Do you miss him? Do you miss that closeness with something transcendent in your life? C.S. Lewis, he's the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. He was a convert from atheism. He's a professor, or was a professor at Oxford. Um, he says this, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You have been made a little bit like one half of a heart-shaped necklace that's designed to match only with God. You were made, designed for communion and union with God. And that's why these verses that were read to us from chapter 3 of Philippians, and you, you want to have it open in front of you, are so precious to us. Because they're talking about this union, how we can find it, how we can maintain it and sustain it. They were written by a man called Paul. He is a convert from killing Christians to being a preacher of Christian truth. And he wrote this as a letter to a church in a place called Philippi um, in around about 80, late 50s. And he's writing in chains from, uh, under house arrest in a prison, most probably in Rome. And it's interesting what happens in chapter 3 is we get revealed to us the underpinnings of his prayer life. What drives it? What, what stirs him to pray? What, what shapes the way that he prays and he enjoys fellowship or closeness with, with God? See, Paul would pray for the churches to know God, to know Jesus and it's really a picture of his own prayer life. Let me share some of his prayers with you. He would pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you might know him better. He'd pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. He'd pray for Christ to dwell in your heart. He'd pray that you'd be rooted and grounded in the love of God, that you might be able to grasp how uh, wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for you. This is the way that Paul prays. He prays for intimacy, for, for a closeness and nearness with God for the churches, and that's how he prays himself. 
Paul found his joy, his deepest sense of meaning and happiness in closeness to Jesus Christ. This is how he's able to rejoice, even in spite of these difficult circumstances, and he comes back to it. This is the theme of this whole letter to the church in Philippi, and right in chapter 3, he's writing again about rejoicing. He's returning to this theme, but he doesn't rejoice in his circumstances, what's going on around him. He has no reason to be happy about being in prison and in chains, but he's still able to rejoice. How does he rejoice? It says he rejoices in the Lord. He rejoices in his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his nearness. It's his closeness. That's the source of his ultimate delight and happiness that transcends all the trouble that's going on in his life. And he gives voice to that expression, that that closeness in verse 10 when he says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. This is the cry for intimacy that we're looking at today. And it's striking that here is a man talking about wanting to know Christ who has an extraordinary conversion and then decade after decade after decade of ministry serving Christ. I mean, it's kind of crazy if you think about it. Of all the people that already knew Christ, surely Paul was like exhibit A of he knows Christ so well and there's everything about him, yet he's saying there's more. I haven't, I haven't attained it all already. There's more. I am pressing on to actually know Christ. What I know of him makes me know and want to know him more. That's what Paul's saying. In verse 15, he says, everybody who's mature should think this way. <laughs> He's saying for everyone, there's an invitation. There is more. There is more width, height, depth, and breadth of God's love for us to experience and to enjoy and really know for everyone here today. That's the invitation. But I think many of us would like to say yes to that invitation for intimacy with God. Many of us maybe have said yes to that, but there's a, there's a challenge that we can't really fully enjoy it or sustain and be continually present in this place of intimacy. There's a problem. There's an obstacle. There's a blockage. I want to describe it like this. There is an evil self-appointed bouncer at the door, if you like, to God's presence and sometimes even pulling us out of God's presence. And this is the first of two points I'm going to make today. It's called the dogged deception. The dogged deception. And this may be the chief reason why so many of us struggle to really enjoy intimacy with God. The biggest issue. And that's why I think Paul says right at the start, if you come back to verse 1, he's saying, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. That's a safeguard to you. He's, he's unapologetic. I'm telling you this again and again and again. Why? Because we are prone to forget. Um, it's a bit like moving house. So Holly and I, some of you know, we moved house about two years ago from Croydon all the way up to here at Westminster, not very far away. Now for weeks afterwards, as I would leave the chapel, come out Castle Lane, I would be autopilotly going towards Victoria Station, across through Cardinal Place, through the wind tunnel <laughs> that it is, heading that way. Instead of turning left, going down kind of Palace Street, heading that way, I would just walk the wrong way. I keep going the wrong way. 
Even two years later, there are moments, honestly, where I'm still going in the wrong direction. And I have to course correct myself. I tell you, it is the same when it comes to the grace of God. The unmerited favor that God bestows on us simply by faith. It's what we call the grace of God. Why is it like that with the grace of God? Well, that's because the grace of God is so (laughs) non-human. It's so other than our meritocracy kind of nature and way of thinking. Now, you might be here today and you're like, oh, I I know about the grace of God. I believe the grace of God, Howard. Um, And therefore, you're just going to switch off and just let everything kind of go over your head for the rest of of the service. I, I would say to you, don't do that. Because that's what Paul is saying. This is a safeguard to you to hear the same thing again and again and again and again. Why? Because we're so prone to forget. That's one reason. Here's the other reason, is that there are active agents that are out there that are signposting you to go back the old way. That are saying, pushing you, urging you. Maybe you got saved by grace, but now we want to live by works, we want to live by law. You've got to do this, do that. There are these active agents that are out there noisily saying, you can't do that, you're not good enough for that. You've got to go this way, the old way, the old covenant, the old person, the old you is kind of rising up now to stop you from living in your true new creation identity, beloved child of God. And Paul calls them dogs in this passage. He attacks them. Now the NIV translation slightly misses this. It's more of a dynamic equivalent phrase for phrase rather than a a literal word for word translation. It's neither is necessarily better than the other. But in a more literal translation in verse 2, there is a warning that Paul gives to the church. Saying watch out, it comes. It's watch out or beware often translated. But not once Not twice, but three times it's actually there in the original. He's like, watch out, watch out, watch out. It's like, hello, wake up church. There are dogs out there who are looking to destroy and devour your faith, your closeness, your nearness with God. And they want to crush you with condemnation. They want you to feel rubbish about who you are and and what you've done and how you live. They want to attack you and bring you low. These barking dogs, Paul speaks extremely harshly to. And there's an irony in his glorious insult in calling what are Judaizers dogs. You see, this is a group of people who basically followed Paul around. As he traveled and he preached and he taught, they kind of tried to catch up with him to criticize what he was teaching, the truth about God and the way of salvation. And they would say things like, you don't listen to him. He's not telling you the truth. Uh, we're, we're here. If you want to get saved, if you want to really know God, if you want to be close to God, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to add this. You've got to do this as well on top of that. Oh, and you must be circumcised. You know, this old mark of the old covenant. You, you've, got to, you've got to do all that stuff. They're basically saying, you immoral non-Jewish scum. You are your dogs. Who do you think you are? You think you could just be good enough for God as you are without doing anything else? And Paul says to them, 
You are the dogs. He turns the tables on them and he says, you're the guys who are wrong. You are so wrong. He calls them dogs. And that was like, not like a poodle. It's a vile, wild, evil, horrible insult. He turns the tables on them. And that's, we've got to turn the tables on their equivalents in the 21st century. We've got to. But it's hard. Because this way of thinking, this meritocracy, you've got to do this to be accepted, is extremely captivating. A survey was done of 7,000 churchgoers, and it asked this, this question coming on your screen. The way to be accepted by God is to sincerely live a good life. Agree or disagree? Now, I wonder how you might answer that question. 60% of those 7,000 churchgoers said agree, which actually is, is a heresy. But I understand, I'm not trying to judge you if you've thought that, because I think we get so caught up in trying to earn our approval with God by what we do. We take God's laws and we take our own standards and we say, if I can just be this this week, if I can do that this week, you know, then God will love me more. He'll accept me more. And if I don't do that, then I'll be rejected by him and I feel crushed and rubbish. And if I do do it, oh, I'm doing it again. Oh, how much better I am than everybody else around me. And I look down on them and, oh no, I failed and I'm crushed. This is the sort of cycle. That is not living by grace. It's living by law. It's, it's captivating. Paul says it has the appearance of wisdom in another letter that he, he writes, but it is utterly deceptive. Let me try and put it to you this way. Um, you could be the perfect Christian, like my wife Holly. <laughs> Some brownie points there. So you could come to church every single week. Instead of just twice a month, which is the typical average church member's attendance today. And you could also actually come on time to every service every week. Wow, that would be like revival. Um, and then on top of that, you could listen to 100 sermons a month. You could read the whole of the New Testament every single week. You could wake up every morning as the sun rises over London and you could pray for like four hours before work and you could like quit your job and join the church and work for the church or go pioneer an unreached people group. And I don't know, maybe you could just give all your money money away to Westminster Chapel's building project. Now, I would like you more, probably even though I shouldn't for doing that. But God won't love you any more. Why? Because he can't. Because you experience the moment that a person believes 100% his maximum, holy, awesome Love. It's by faith. It's by faith. You get everything. The moment that you believe, you get everything. This is what Paul is saying. Have a look at verses 4 to 9. He's saying it. You know, he's, saying, he's saying, look at me. I was the perfect Jew. Look at my family background. Look at the tribe I'm a part of. Look at the way that I lived. I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. Look at all the good that I was doing. With such zeal, I was persecuting the church. I was trying to get rid of every single thing that was a, a damage to the Jewish way of life and thinking. I was the ultimate, the Jew of Jew. And he says, 
is rubbish. Actually, the word he uses, he says, it's excrement, utter rubbish. Didn't give him 1% of the love that he had found in Jesus Christ. It was worthless. This is important because it concerns me that the capital C church today is not really living, teaching, preaching, living out the, the grace of God in the right way. You, know, you get criticism when you're a preacher, usually comes, that's just part of the job. But I tell you, the criticism that I haven't had for some time is that how are you preaching license? That is, you are encouraging people to go on sinning or to sin more because you are preaching grace so strongly. That actually is the criticism that Paul himself got for preaching grace. Was he preaching license? No, but he preached grace so strongly that people thought that that might be what he was saying. People need to hear the message of the grace of God so that they know that the moment that they do come to their senses and put their trust in him, that they will find acceptance and not judgment. That's how we can be real in repentance and not hide or hold anything back because we are confident that the grace of God will cover our sin, however bad, however deep, however awful it may be which allows us a way in to have intimacy with God. It's really struck me that um, a few years back, a university Christian union held a series of lunchtime talks. And they went through the usual kind of talk titles that you might know for these sorts of events. So, how can a good God allow suffering? I'm not knocking that, it's a good talk title. But they did something I'd never quite seen done before. They had a talk that was titled, Does God Want Me? And by a mile, that was the most popular talk. Does God want me? Does he really want me? Just as I am? That, I think, is the question that is on the lips of most people outside of the church today, not least because it's on our lips. One of the reasons I think people don't come to church today is they assume they won't be accepted by God or by the church. They think, you know, how could, how could I hang out with, how could I be good enough to spend time with these do-gooders? Yeah, it is it's laughable, really, when I look out at you guys. You've been so terrible and like... And uh, what a bunch, you know, and I'm perfect, of course not. And uh, it's like, but that's how we, that's because they don't, they, they're not getting grace from us. They're getting maybe a little bit more law in their understanding of our faith. Wherever you're at today, God wants you to know that he wants you. I really want you to hear that. God wants you. And the moment that I've said that, voices may be going off, the dogs may be barking again of why you can't, that can't be the case. 
more than just a human. He wants you. He came to demonstrate that by dying for you. So he could take on all your shame or your guilt on himself. So he could break away open through the cross, through his, his dead body on a cross. All of the judgment comes on him so that all of the acceptance can come to you. That you might be able to draw close to him. God wants you to know that he loves you. There's grace for you. And that part of you that you don't want anybody to know about, that you actually would try and hold back away from God, that you think is unworthy of his love, that seedy, sinful, rebellious, dirty, ugly, shameful, guilty, embarrassing, and dirty part of yourself that you hold back. God is here today and he is saying, I want my grace and my love to flood that part of you. There is no part of you that is irredeemable in God's sight. He accepts you for everything of who you are. And this is the grace that we have to keep growing on in. To keep reminding ourselves about. To keep preaching to ourselves. Get a prayer journal and pray it out. To memorize the scriptures, Ephesians chapter 1. To keep coming back so that we listen to his voice of love and we tell the barking dogs where to go. That's the first point. Beware the dogged deception. The second point is that we need to pursue a heart and a a head knowledge in our intimacy with God. Paul in verse 10, if we look at this, he says, I want to know Christ. And the word that he uses for know in the original Greek language is actually speaking not so much about knowing head knowledge and facts about God, but he's talking about an experiential heart knowledge, a personal knowledge of God. You see, this is how he prays. This is the way that we should pray. This should be at the center of every prayer. It should be, I want to know Christ. I want to know him. I don't want to just know ideas about him as if he's some kind of concept. I want to know him as a person, as a being. I want to relate to him. How do I get to know my wife, Holly? How could I get to know and understand how she could love a loser like me. I thought that was funny. You guys just took that straight seriously, didn't you? (laughs) Yep, you are a loser. Yep, we want to (laughs) know. So one of the ways I've thought about doing this would be like I could take her to like one of the local London hospitals and we could attach some probes to her head, sort of measure sort of the brain activity at certain moments, maybe as I say certain things to her, or it could be skin kind of conductivity, does she sort of sweat out like that? But that's only going to get me so far. Really, I need a full biochemistry body workout, which you can only get from dissection. <laughs> now, I am caricaturing a little bit, but sometimes we're in danger of being so head And we need both. I'm not saying it's one or the other. We need both. But we can be so head when it comes to God that we can end up dissecting him rather than relating to him as a being. We're all about the doctrine. But I tell you, doctrine, information that doesn't awaken affection about God, it's deadly. We need to know him. And that's his, his, he wants to know you. I love um, the way this comes out in the film Goodwill Hunting. It's completely unintentional. I don't think they meant it this way or for this application, uh, which I find quite amusing. Uh, but if you haven't seen the film, it's an award-winning film, and it stars Matt Damon, and he plays a 20-something genius kid with like an epic 
ridiculously high IQ. And he's, Will has read all the right books, but he has this problem. He won't let anybody get close to him. And he reaches a moment in his life for different reasons where he is forced to see a psychiatrist called Sean who's played by Robin Williams. And they have a first meeting together, and it's a very awkward encounter because um, in the kind of study, the therapy room that Sean has, Matt Damon's character, Will, is there, and he sees a painting on the wall on the side, and he decides, because he's read loads of books about art criticism, of course, that he is now going to criticize this painting that's on the wall, and he like, just rips it to shreds with his words. What he doesn't know about the painting is that Sean himself painted it after his wife died of cancer. Unpleasant encounter. Sometime later, they are now sat on a park bench in Boston, and Sean says this to him. I thought about what you said to me the other day about my painting. Stayed up half the night thinking about it, and something occurred to me. I fell into a deep, peaceful sleep, and I haven't thought about you since. You know what occurred to me? You're just a kid. You've never been out of Boston. So if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him, life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, sexual orientation, the whole works, right? But I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never actually stood there and looked up at that beautiful ceiling. Seen that? If I ask you about women, you'd probably give me a syllabus of your personal favorites. You may have even slept with one, but you can't tell me what it feels like to wake up next to a woman and feel truly happy. You're a tough kid. I ask you about war, you'd probably throw out Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, dear friends. But you've never been in one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap and watched him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. I ask you about love. You'll probably quote me a sonnet. But you've never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable, known that she could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you who could rescue you from the depths of hell. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel and to have that love for her, be there forever, through anything, through cancer. You don't know about real loss, because that only occurs when you love something more than you love yourself. I doubt you've ever dared to love anybody that much. Today is an invitation to intimacy, but it's also really a dare to love God and to love other people that much. How do you do that? You don't do it legalistically. You do it because you have been loved that much more. Not by a man or a woman, but by God himself. You see, we should read about God in books. We should study about Jesus in sermons. But to really know God, you have to be vulnerable with him. And you can 
Because he's God, he's omniscient, he knows everything about you. He really does. You can't hide anything from him. But more than that, it's not just his omniscience. He became like you. He took on human flesh so that he could sympathize with you. He's lived your life. He understands you so he can represent you, so he could die on the cross on behalf of your sin and atone for you so that you might be able to have nearness and intimacy and closeness with the God who made the stars. Wow. Wow. Paul goes on to give voice to what this intimacy looks like when he says, I want to know Christ. The first thing he says is to know the the power of his resurrection. To know that same power that raised Jesus from the dead so that he was then seen and witnessed by so many people that birthed the Christian faith. This is why we're here today. He wants that same power. I want to know Christ and I want to have that experience of that power living inside me. That same dynamite that destroyed sin and put sin to death. I want that in me so that I might live a holy, pleasing life. Killing off sin and living for the pleasure and glory of God. See, grace doesn't propel us to go on sinning. It stirs us to live up to what has already happened to us, to what we have already attained, to quote Paul in verse 16. That God, through Christ, now sees us as beautiful, as holy, as precious, as glorious. He doesn't see our dirt and our rubbish. He doesn't even see our sin anymore. He looks at us as clean and righteous through Christ himself. And we are now, yes, that's how he looks upon me. Wow. Now I want to live out that. Now I want to live out what it really means to be his beloved bride, his child. I want to serve him. I don't want to sin. I want to embark on a relationship that's going to be damaging, that's going to pull me away from him. Why would I do that? I want to just push ambitiously for that super job and get money and rich. I don't want to do that because I might lose him. I want him. I want to live a holy life pleasing to him. That's the first thing. The power of the resurrection. The second thing is to have fellowship with his sufferings. This is really interesting because suffering today is seen as one of the main reasons why people draw away from God. In fact, the biggest obstacle actually to believing in God, Paul says it's the very reverse for him. He takes all of his suffering, all of his persecution, all of the stonings, beatings, floggings that he experiences. Then all the emotional agony that he gets over leading churches. You know, leading churches, he sets them up. You know, he establishes them. He plants them. Then he gets all the moaning and the criticism. You're not as good at preaching as him. You're not as good a leader as him. We don't like you. We don't like this letter. Why are you doing that? We don't want that. He gets all of that. and He brings all of that suffering, all of that critique to Christ. And it becomes not something to be angry about. But it becomes a window of fellowship and intimacy that in some small way he can unite. It fuses his unity with Christ to understand what Christ endured and suffered for his salvation. So Paul is like, bring it on. I love the suffering because it helps me to fellowship, to know my Savior, to understand this is what he did for me. He endured that and so much more. Wow, he loves me. He loves me. And this is our invitation as a church to pray this way. Because I tell you, a people who pray this way, who cry out from the heart, I want to know Christ like Paul, 
will, like Paul, change the world for the better. So as we come now to respond and the band come up, there's a moment for you to cry out for intimacy, for closeness, for nearness, for fellowship. Where are you at today? Have you believed the lies of the barking dogs telling you you're rubbish, you're inadequate, you're not worthy, you're such a disappointment, you're ugly, defiled, too dirty for God to love you? This is the moment to say that is rubbish and to choose, say, I believe the voice of Jesus today is saying, I am accepted, I am beloved, I am welcomed, and I want to live for his glory and for his praise. Let's take a moment to stand. I'm going to pray, and then we'll worship. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you came to die for our sin, and that we don't have to do anything because we couldn't do anything to earn our salvation or rescue. All we have to do is surrender, is to bow the knee again, is to put our faith and our trust in you. God, I pray that for every person in this auditorium right now and myself, you would help us once again to come before you and to experience your grace, to accept your acceptance of us to draw closer and as we draw closer to trust in the promise that you will draw close to us that we will truly be known by you and in knowing you we'll be able to know everything else that we need to know that matters so come father and son send and release your holy spirit right now that we might not just have head knowledge about you but heart knowledge help us to truly know our glorious King and Saviour. In his name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how. sermon audio from Westminster Chapel. If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.